0: This past week and a half, I was in Boston, continuing my doctoral studies at Boston University, which I realize, given this weekend, was MLK's alma mater. I won't get into the specifics of the class yet, though if you're curious, it was simply called Contextual Analysis. I mean, by that name alone, how could you not want to sign up for it? The academics in the room are going, oh yeah, (laughs) yeah. In this course, I got to spend nearly all of my time with colleagues that have become very close. There are four of us that have become closest. A United Church of Christ minister from Abington, Massachusetts, a Catholic priest who is also a Dominican brother from New Haven, Connecticut, and an Anglican vicar from Oxford, England, and myself, the Unitarian Universalist. Now, I will let your imaginations run wild as to what our conversation sounded like, but the priest had the worst mouth of us all. (laughs) Sadly, our Oxford friend cannot be with us this winter. This course we were taking was the first of two research-oriented and analysis classes that we are required to take. And as part of our work, we gathered in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston and were tasked with simply wandering. Find a place to eat lunch, take notes, observe everything. The three of us, a priest, a congregationalist, and a Unitarian, this joke doesn't end well, I'm sure, (laughs) hopped in the UCC minister's truck and just drove deeper into the neighborhood. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Hyde Park in Boston, it used to be a blue-collar white neighborhood, but has become predominantly African-American and Hispanic recently, We arrived, walked into a little Jamaican restaurant, and had the best jerk chicken and coconut smoothies we have ever had in our lives. Halfway through our gathering there, my UCC colleague texted her husband about what we were doing. She wrote, we're supposed to find a restaurant in Hyde Park and observe the people. And her husband wrote back almost instantly, but you are the ones being observed. Here we were, Three white clergy, the only white people to enter this business the entire time we sat there. Here we were in 2019 in a still segregated America. Again, from Dr. King, familiar words. He writes, I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and the white girls as sisters and brothers I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I certainly cannot do justice to the delivery Dr. King gave standing at the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963. I don't think anyone can. His words are immortalized, enduring, and ringing out from the past into this very moment. We've all heard the lines. Perhaps we have read the speech itself, the official transcript, and marveled at how the transcribers included all of the feedback from the audience in the transcript, all of the amens and alleluias, the o lords and the preachers. When I was in high school each year, around this time, the very voice of Dr. King would echo out over the intercom for the entire 15 minutes of the speech. Perhaps you've watched it lately. And if you've never read or seen Dr. King's speech, this one in particular, or any of his speeches, allow me to shame you gently this morning. They are required viewing for any American, but more so for any American that finds themselves in a church whose values espouse worth and dignity and liberty for all people. And even more so for a church whose history is intricately tied to the history of Dr. King and the Civil Rights Movement. When the calls went out to white clergy, Unitarian Universalists were amongst the first to respond. When Dr. King reminded whites and blacks alike that their very marching could lead to beatings, arrests, and even the loss of their lives, Unitarian Universalists still marched. And when the martyrs of the movement were buried and mourned, Unitarian Universalists had their names read in remembrance too. Our own religious history is but a small part of the civil rights movement, but we need to remember it. We cannot forget. We cannot forget Viola Liuzzo, the mother of five from Michigan who heard the call of Dr. King and participated in the successful march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, only to be murdered by the Ku Klux Klan while driving home with fellow activists. She was 39. We cannot forget the Reverend James Reeb, a minister from Boston, who marched with Dr. King and helped organize with other ministers, who was beaten to death outside of a restaurant by white segregationists. He was only four years older than I am now. We cannot forget all those people, whether or not they were Unitarian Universalists, though many were, who marched, were beaten, hosed, had dogs unleashed on them, that left their families, their jobs, their congregations, all because they shared the impossible dream of Dr. King. We cannot forget Bayard Rustin, a black Quaker who was snuck in the back trunk of a car in and out of civil rights marches and meetings by organizers because he was an openly gay black man and they did not want to scandalize the movement. Imagine that. We cannot forget all those lives lost, the lives lost still, all for a dream. When we hear these words of Dr. King, we must remember that his dream was the dream of all the martyrs of the movement, It was the dream of enslaved Africans, of segregated blacks, of whites who saw injustice in the system. And I would hope and I pray it is our dream today. But how are we doing with that dream? How are the hopes of Dr. King and his movement, which continues still, how is it actually doing? Can we say with confidence this morning that in the United States of America, it is self-evident that all men and women are created equal? On this winter morning, are blacks and whites sitting down at the table of Brotherhood on the Red Hills of Georgia? Has the state of Mississippi, or any former slave-holding or slave-selling state, been transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice? This week, when Dr. King would have turned 90, had he lived, are black and brown children not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character? as I am a person of undeniable hope, my instinct is to answer yes. Perhaps some of you want to answer yes, too, but I find that even if we can muster up a weak yes to any of our reflections of the dream of Dr. King, we have to add ands, ifs, and buts to each and every one of them, so much so that our yeses quickly become nos. Here in 2019, We have more voter suppression laws than we did 50 years ago when the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts were passed. And you don't have to look far for unjust voting laws where predominantly black or brown precincts had their voting rolls purged, only for people to show up and find they were not registered and missed a deadline that was never communicated. And I know I'm not alone here, but how many of our precincts here in Kentucky, where we had some of the closest political races we've seen in decades, had sudden and mysterious voting machine shortages and wait times of over two hours. If you've ever worked minimum wage jobs in your life to survive, two hours is two hours too long. Here in 2019, the economy of the United States has grown 18-fold, only to see poverty and wealth and wealth inequality also increase. Costs of living are still skyrocketing, and social welfare programs have been drastically cut. Since the 1970s, wages for, and remember this, wages for almost 80% of workers have remained stagnant. If you've ever waitress tables at a diner, you know what I mean. Over 30 million Americans still lack adequate health insurance. Food stamp programs are consistently being cut. Student debt is at almost $1.5 trillion dollars. That makes my debt look like a drop in the bucket. And one in four families in this country have zero or negative net worth. Here in 2019, 42% of our nation is considered poor or low income. That's over 440 million Americans. And 95 million of those people are living at less than twice the poverty line. Now if you enjoy math, and I know some of you do, The poverty line for a family of four, including two children, is just over $22,000 a year. Less than twice that. One in eight Americans are food insecure, meaning the week ahead is unknown to them as far as nutrition is concerned. And 14 million households cannot afford clean water. Also here in 2019, three white clergy sit in a Jamaican restaurant in inner city Boston. And the racial divides are still clear as day. Now the list could go on as with anything. But these are the problems that Dr. King would have described as being part of an inescapable and single garment of destiny. What affects one of us affects all of us. So really, how do you think we're doing with the dream of Dr. King? It's overwhelming, isn't it, to hear all of that information and know that's only a fraction of the inequity We are experiencing. It's overwhelming in its scope. It's overwhelming because many of us in this room are affected by those very things. It's overwhelming because it's 2019. And when will humanity learn? The dream is still just that, an ethereal collection of images that we are trying to interpret and find meaning. But in the end, it's all in our heads still. Right now, some of you After hearing all of that are probably wishing it snowed more and the church was closed this morning. (laughs) But this weekend, where we will march and remember the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., these are things that we need to know. We are not just remembering history, we are continuing the work of one of America's greatest prophets. This work is just as relevant today as it was then. Perhaps it is even more important now, as our species teeters over the edge of existential threats that remain to be seen with global warming, the rise of nationalistic populism, and a world that feels increasingly divided. But just as Dr. King had a hope that he would not live to see realized, we are all tasked to find a similar hope. A hope that we might see a glimmer of in reality, but the culmination of which is still far off. And I know I still have that hope. I do have hope with the revival of the Poor People's Campaign under the leadership of the Reverend William Barber. (coughs) It was a hope hope not found in the eyes of fellow protesters or while staring down heavily armed Capitol Police in Frankfort, Kentucky. It was a hope not found in singing the protest songs, linking arms and pressing forward, or even calling out the hypocrisy of self-professed Christian elected officials. No, it was a hope that this is a campaign that has been unfolding since the very inception of our nation. When the words were uttered and written that all people are created equal, that was a dream too. A dream we are still realizing. Dr. King, in the reading you heard earlier, tasked us with becoming maladjusted to the inequities of the world around us. Are you? And if you march tomorrow... Is it a happy walk in memory of Dr. King? Or is it an expression of your maladjustment? I know many of you worked campaigns tirelessly this last election cycle. Was it for the personalities of the candidates, whoever they were? Or the platforms of maladjustment? Policies that said enough is enough, justice is our politics. And whatever your justice work is, I hope and pray it is rooted in some good old-fashioned righteous indignation and maladjustment. I would hope we cannot be complacent. Perhaps that was the real dream of Dr. King, to give us such monumental hopes that we didn't even have the option to be complacent. And so we will march tomorrow. Many of you will be there in the cold because our comfort is not our reason for marching Celebration is not our reason for marching. Our reason for marching, as it is for any march or protest, petition or campaign, is our maladjustment with the world. We gather here week after week as Unitarian Universalists, sharing common values and a vision for how our world ought to be. A vision shared by many of our fellow people of faith, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Jews. And we should be maladjusted. Wherever dignity or worth is denied, wherever justice or liberty is threatened, wherever artificial division persists. For that, we march, the dream of Dr. King and the values that we all hold. I wholeheartedly believe that we entered a phase after the life of Dr. King where many Americans started to forget. Perhaps that is why we are where we are. We thought things were getting phenomenally better. How could we not? Successes were seen. Progress was visible. The work felt like it was done. But it isn't. And that is why we still march. We close with the words of Dr. King. He writes, This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope.